Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little different in that we aren't going to focus on nonviolence per se, but rather on one of the ways in which the nonviolent theology should play out in the real world. I'll be drawing very heavily from the works of Stanley Harawas, particularly his essay, The Gesture of a Truthful Story. In the book, he co-authored with Jean Venier called Living Gently in a Violent World. I remember the first time reading Harawas and coming across his treatment of individuals with mental impairments. It struck me because, by and large, you just don't find people talking about this group in, in meaningful ways. Sure, I understand that we as Christians claim to value them and uphold their dignity, but what is there really to discuss? I mean, whether we say it out loud or not, the way those with mental impairments are treated is that we kind of put up with them. We love them in as much as we pity them and try to make room for them in the church so that their parents can get something out of the service. But we don't really think enough of those with mental impairments to see them as individuals we attempt to edify in Christ, or as individuals who can contribute to our edification. But what I've been learning from Christian history as well as from teachers like Harawas is that those with mental impairments must be valued differently than we currently do. And that's why Harawas wrote a whole book on the topic. Now, I, I don't intend at all to claim that some people don't truly value the mentally handicapped. I'm also not going to claim that those who adhere to Christian nonviolence do this perfectly, or that those who don't adhere to Christian nonviolence don't value the mentally impaired. What I do want to argue, though, is that the nonviolent position is going to offer one a foundation to arrive at the valuing of those with mental disabilities much more easily than and with much more consistency. A position of nonviolence means that we value all others, including enemies. And the position of nonviolence also means that our goal is faithfulness, not effectiveness. We can love our enemies and those who most view as uh, we view most view as sapping our resources without benefiting us because we believe that faithfulness to our sovereign God is the way that the world ought to work. We can trust him for results and do the right thing, even if that thing, like loving those with mental disabilities, seems to be a waste of time and resources. It's our incarnation, our faithfulness, our patience, and our love, which is the power that God may eventually use to transform the hearts of others. And that path may prove tedious, long, and largely fruitless in our lifetime. So where you find a solid nonviolent ethic, you will find an emphasis on faithfulness, incarnation, patience, and love despite the seeming results. Where you find an ethic which embraces violence, you'll often find these things compromised in varying degrees. So it'll be possible for the violent to be inconsistent and to uphold those with mental disabilities, but such inconsistency will tend to poke holes in other aspects of their theology where the same values are compromised. In this episode, I want to explore what I'll call the doctrine of other. If you keep in mind what I've said here, as well as previous seasons, especially the one on, on consequentialism, I think you'll be able to see how the nonviolent position embraces this concept the best, and why you don't find many books dedicated to the way those with disabilities are valuable and help us to grow. And when you do find such books that are, are about those with mental disabilities, they really tend to come from the nonviolent community. As just one quick object lesson, do a quick Google search on Christians and the mentally challenged. Change up the wording as you like, but observe the first page of results that you get and the organizations behind those results. What you're going to find, or at least 
what I found when I did it is that the vast majority of pages which come up are asking whether or not the mentally handicapped can get into heaven. That's really the the thing that everybody's searching for when they search uh, Christian and mentally handicapped. Uh, can, can these people be saved? Is it possible? Can God or will God save them? And the results are all about a focus on whether people so flawed, so mentally flawed and impaired, can be saved by God. You'll be hard-pressed to find any results which put the mentally impaired and Christians together in such a way that the mentally impaired are viewed as assets or valuable members of the Christian community. It's all about how weak they are and whether we can somehow get them saved. And not surprisingly, most, if not all, of the groups you'll find behind this are groups which adhere to violence as an option for Christians. Nonviolence tends to give one a different set of lenses not only about war and enemies, but about otherness in general. And that's what I want to discuss today, otherness. So, let's jump right in. I want to start by recounting the creation story, which I, I know I've done in one or two other episodes, but I, I think it's important enough to do again. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were absolutely focused on other. Adam focused on Eve and her needs. He tended the garden. He, he was focused on nature. He served and loved God. Eve served Adam. She was his helpmate. She served God. She served nature. Right? It was beautiful. Nature served Adam and Eve and served God. It, it worked as God intended. It was good. And it didn't have thorns and thistles working against Adam and Eve. It was good. It worked for everybody. And you, you have this, um, and God was, was walking with them and working for everybody and serving. So you just have this, this complete focus on otherness. And um, it, it really, my eyes were open to this, this story as being so profound when, when one of my college professors um, said, did you guys ever wonder why the first thing after Adam and Eve sinned is they realized they were naked? And I didn't. I, I was like, that is a good question. That seems like the dumbest thing ever. So I sin, and now all of a sudden I realize I'm naked? And his explanation, which comes from a lot of other other theologians and, the, and their concept, is that prior to Adam and Eve's sin, they were focused exclusively on other. Adam didn't have to worry about his needs because he knew that God, nature, and Eve were going to take care of him. There, he was not looking to himself. But what a sin. Sin is a defining good and evil for oneself. It's a looking to self, right? Uh, it's selfishness, self-centeredness, pride. It's, it's all about me. And so the first thing that happened after sin was there was this recognition of nakedness. But when we see the second Adam, when we see Jesus come back, we see what it looks like in, in our world that's all messed up with sin to live a life that is utterly focused on others, serving God, serving others. Whether that other is a Gentile sinner, uh, whether that's somebody, uh, that, that other is an individual who might make you unclean if you touch them, whether that's somebody who's impoverished, whether that's a prostitute or a tax collector, it just doesn't matter. Uh, whether it's an enemy, a Roman soldier, the person who's killing you, the person who put you on the cross, it doesn't matter. Um, Jesus shows us what it looks like to be a true human, to live other-focused, a, a completely other-focused life. Uh, other-focused life. This theology of otherness that we glean from the very first pages of the Bible really shouldn't be surprising to us. 
because it's, it's rooted in God himself, and we see that in Jesus. Our God knew love, community, selflessness, and all other relational goods because he had been in community forever. God has always resided in Trinity, in relation. When God chose to create, he didn't just create inanimate or soulless beings. He created humanity, a race with whom he could be in relation and with whom to share responsibility of governance and authority over creation. From creation and from eternity beforehand, God has been a God of other. In the Trinity and in creation, the doctrine of other was central. And in God's new community, the church, otherness is central once more. Philippians 2, one of the most cited passages in this podcast, is all about the church being for others as Christ was in kenosis for other. However, humans don't like otherness. We see this with Adam and Eve when they gave into the serpent's temptation to be like God. They were lured by the prospect of removing God's distinctiveness or otherness from them. Rather than have God be God and they be humans, they wanted to be like God. They didn't want him to be other. We see this in the Corinthian church when Paul had to emphasize the goodness found in the differentiation of the gifts that God distributes differently throughout the body. Everyone may want to prophesy or speak in tongues, and Paul even says he'd love for everybody to be able to prophesy. But Paul recognized that God, in his wisdom, gives gifts to humanity in different measures, yet without diminishing the role or need of any. We see distinctions made between children and parents. We see Jew and Gentile distinguished. Yet all these categories and distinctions do nothing to diminish one standing or value in Christ and his body. He tears down those barriers. Distinction alone does not mean inferiority or inequality. But humans have a problem with distinction, don't we? We seem to believe that if there is a difference between us and someone else, then a power or value difference exists. When I see someone who is better gifted at music than I am, I might become jealous. When I see that I work just as hard as someone else, yet they make more money, I might be envious of the position that they have. We can't stand others being distinctively better than us. At the same time, we see other distinctions as weaknesses. When we see someone with a disability, we often look at them with pity because we think that we are better than, more capable than, or more powerful than they are. We view the distinction between normal and disabled as not just a mere distinction, but as a value statement, though we would never say such a thing. To be normal is better than to be disabled, for who would ever choose to take on the distinction of being disabled? We spend our whole lives attempting to identify the power or the weakness others have, and we try to subdue those more powerful than us while asserting our own dominance over those who are weaker. It's why the materialist accrues more wealth than her neighbor, or why one man tries to be more fit than the next man. The current sinful human condition is all about relationship. It's all about other. But it's a comparative relationship rather than a sacrificial relationship which seeks edification. It's a relationship of power and weakness, not a relationship of otherness. The question of fallen humanity is now, how can I be like or above another, not how can another be edified by me? We crave power and position. Or as the book Strong and Weak puts it so perfectly, we seek to increase our authority while decreasing our vulnerability. But in the bully and tyrant, we are somehow able to see what we all know to be true in our everyday minor power grabs. Dominance is really weakness. One who is driven to be better than others does not have power because they're not even in control of themselves. 
They're controlled by everyone else and the internal needs which stem from their own neuroticism. There's no real power in that. And in the martyr or the philanthropist, the opposite of bullies and tyrants, we recognize true courage in a power which goes much deeper than physical assertion. They're not controlled by their desire to be better than others because they have killed such desires in the laying down of their lives for others. Fear of death, torture, rejection, impoverishment, malnourishment, or disease cannot dissuade a true martyr or philanthropist from their course, for they are driven by outward love rather than drawn in by the black hole of compulsion and neuroticism. This doctrine of otherness, this power in service and powerlessness, is expressed very beautifully in a book called Living Gently in a Violent World. The book explores the apparent weakness of those who have various disabilities, undermining our notions of weakness and exploring the valuable lessons we can learn from those who are mentally different than most of us, those who are other than how we are. While those who aren't mentally like us have many inherent strengths we may not even think of, one of the key ways in which they most help edify a community is simply reminding us that they are other. They wear their differences on their sleeves, whether they they want to or not. While it's easy for the majority of individuals to reside within a community and look just like everyone else, those with disabilities often can't just blend in. They are constant reminders of the otherness that exists within our communities. Whereas we usually try to ignore otherness, the overt otherness of the disabled doesn't allow us to do this. Instead, communities in which the disabled reside are faced with the choice of either loving or domineering. Unfortunately, we often choose to domineer the disabled. We turn their distinctions, their clear otherness, into weakness. We domineer with pity. We domineer with downward glances. We domineer with exclusion from our community because they wouldn't get what we had to say. And their exclusion would be for their own good, wouldn't it? Rather than treat the disabled as an other human in our community, we treat them as beings who are so other that they cannot possibly enter our community. They're not on our level. They're weaker. They aren't worthy of me. Our domineering masquerades as humble service towards the disabled, but anything which comes up short of a welcoming incorporation into the community is not love. But should we choose love for those who are so obviously distinct, it opens up the doorway for us to be the humans that God intended for us to truly be. It reminds us that the world is filled with many who are other, and true power comes in serving and loving outwardly, beyond ourselves. Isn't this what God himself did when he became a human incarnate? He became an other for us, even becoming his own antithesis, sin. Beyond the clear distinctiveness of the disabled, God has gifted most communities with a very different member, a very distinct other. God has gifted us children. Children are often so difficult to love as they don't let us avoid looking beyond ourselves. They require us to look outward because they require our care for their physical needs. They demand our attention. They are bold in their actions and their requests. You cannot avoid children if they are in your community, though many of us genuinely try to do so. Some of us even our own children. In our society, we've made it easier to avoid our own children through nurseries, summer camps, programs, activities, daycares, after-school care, and screens. Rarely do we come face-to-face with children, even our own children, because if we did, we'd have to look into the face of God whose kingdom is composed of such as these. The original disciples viewed children as a nuisance and 
so do Christ's 21st century disciples. But Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, has not changed his view on children. Children are an invaluable reminder to us that others exist and that we should serve. It is quite possible that it is the very reason the church for nearly 2,000 years viewed marriage as a willingness, not the ability, to procreate as going hand in hand. Paul recommends that Christians remain single so they can focus outwardly and edify the body of Christ. Why can't you edify the body when you're married? Well, you can, but since marriage almost certainly entailed children, then raising a family would likely sap you of time and resources you'd otherwise spend in direct service to God, or on self. So if one was married, one would seek to have children. To get married and trying to prevent children wasn't an option for Christians. That wasn't how God created marriage to be, and such an act was viewed as selfishness. So for the early church, to be a single Christian meant service to the church, and to be a married Christian meant service to children, and then to the body, secondarily. Christians could not escape the call to service of other, no matter which route they chose. As my wife and I have entered parenting, I'm sad to report that quite often we fail at God's call to serving the otherness that we find in his gift of children. I remember a few years ago when we vented to each other about how frustrating it was going to church with our kids. You know, we, we felt like we were never getting fed. We couldn't pay attention to the sermon. We often had to discipline or, uh, or attend to children during worship. We're constantly training them to sit and listen so that we ourselves were never able to sit still and listen. All of the focusing on, on others made us feel like we couldn't focus on ourselves. While I think there's some truth to our heart uh, healthfulness requiring moments of solitude, I mean, didn't even Jesus go alone to pray uh, a lot? Yeah, but at the same time, I think that's more the exception than the rule. God constantly calls us to self-growth, but that growth almost always comes through a focus on other. Whether it's God's command in Hebrews 10 to assemble together, his command to be generous, not just for the sake of others, but for the sake of our own hearts, his prescription to withhold food from ourselves and fasting so we can focus on God and on intercession for others in prayer, or whether it's God's commands to love and seek justice and mercy for others, we should understand by now that growth in the Christian life comes not from some inward Gnostic knowledge and self-motivation, or from some intellectual morsel of truth that we can glean from something, but it comes from coming in contact with God. And this contact with God often comes through our contact with those who bear his image, through those who are other than us, the hungry, the thirsty, the prisoner, the orphan, the widow, the beggar, and perhaps maybe even our enemy. How conceited am I when I think that I am getting so little out of church by serving my children? I can hear a thousand sermons and never be changed, but by humbly serving the least from my heart, God can change me greatly. By serving the least, God also works in the lives of those we serve to show them mercy and grace, the true means which changes another's heart. By serving others, those who look on our gracious and loving service may be softened by seeing Christ truly lived out, drawing them into the church or restoring them to a healthy relationship with Christ. By serving others, God is glorified and his body is edified. Jesus even tells us that by serving the least, we are directly serving him. We are myopic fools to think that the preaching of God's words will change us when we refuse to allow the very word of God to be incarnate in us and through us, 
Hearing the word is nothing without regeneration, and regeneration comes through the indwelling of Christ's Spirit in us. His Spirit will certainly be exemplified not in mere faith, but as James says in our every action. And what are the actions of the regenerated? As Philippians tells us, the doctrine of other is the embodiment of Jesus Christ himself, and it is in like manner we are to become incarnate towards others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God has blessed all of us with constant reminders of the otherness which exists in his world. Some are married and some are single. Some are teachers and some are even evangelists. Some have disabilities and some have more physical and mental prowess. Some are young, some are old. Whatever your church and community consists of, I can guarantee you it consists of others and otherness. This is not a flaw and it is not a call to require assimilation. It is a call to praise God for diversity and for his mercy and grace in using each of us in our strengths and weaknesses. But above all, it is a gracious reminder of our triune God that we do not exist as gods who live for ourselves, but as creatures who are to live in loving community. In a culture saturated with individualistic and materialistic tendencies, no reminder could be as important in and drawing us away from the first damnable lie told so long ago, that to be like God we must eat of the fruit and satisfy ourselves. No, in the person of Christ, God showed us what it meant to be like God. To be like God, we must condescend to live incarnate lives, laying down our preferences, comfort, and lives for others. This is how Jesus draws all humanity to himself, how Jesus glorifies the Father, and how Jesus himself is exalted. In like manner, we must take up our crosses if we are to be like the God who Jesus perfectly revealed. Only when we do this will we no longer be mere believers, but true followers. Only then will we be like God.